All week long, I've tried to imagine myself preaching today to a sanctuary full of people who recently weathered a storm, or an unexpected diagnosis, or a wildfire, or the shaking of the ground beneath their feet. What would those people want to hear today? What could they hear? And what could I possibly say about God that would ring true to them, to those who have suffered the loss of nearly everything? This summer, I read the book, What is the Bible? by Rob Bell. It's an easy, compelling read that offers a fresh perspective on the compilation of stories and parables and teachings and lessons that we call the Bible. In a chapter entitled, The Importance of Altitude, where Bell talks about getting perspective before we read the book, he makes the case, and a compelling case, that we as a people are living, as he puts it, between the trees. As you know, the Bible begins with the book of Genesis. It begins with people living together in peace in a beautiful garden with a river flowing through it and a tree. And then, many, many pages later, the Bible ends, as you heard this morning, with the book of Revelation, with people again living in peace by a river and a tree, this time in a city rather than the garden. If the Bible were a movie and you were watching the previews, the opening scene involving a tree in a garden and the closing scene involving a tree in a city would be very similar, helping you see a connection between the two. We live our days between those two trees. We live between God's blessing and God's promise, between the gift of life we got in the garden and the promise of that life of joy and peace that we're all waiting for one day. And as we have seen clearly this week, if you've watched the news or listened at all, you know we have not yet reached that second tree. We live between the trees. Which is why I believe the Bible, the book we study, is not primarily a guidebook on how to get to heaven. The action, after all, is here. The life is here the point is here. We are not on some magical journey up, up, and away like Mary Poppins. We are on a journey, I believe, to find life here on earth. Repent, Jesus likes to say, for the kingdom, the realm, the reality of God's presence is here, among us, now. Which is why today's passage from Matthew has so much to teach us as we consider, here in the 21st century, what it looks like to follow Jesus in a time, let's be honest, when there are so many horrible things happening, one might begin to think, begin to wonder, if faith really is about leaving this place to find something better. This past week, did you see it? Even the New York Times got caught up in the speculation about whether this was the end of the journey there was an article this week entitled, Apocalyptic Thoughts Amid Nature's Chaos? You Could Be Forgiven. That's in the Times. And you really can't blame them for publishing the article. Earthquakes, epic storms, wildfires, and just a few weeks ago, the moon covered the sun. 
And I'm not even talking about the political chaos <laughs> that's happening here, but also, let's be honest, it's happening all around the world. It's enough to make even the biggest skeptic wonder if we are near the end. Which takes me back to that sanctuary full of people who have suffered such a great and immediate loss. The question I found myself wrestling with this week as we begin this sermon series together on pathways, pathways to life and to faith and to hope, is how one goes about finding hope while living between the trees. How does one find meaning while living between the gift of life, the blessing that is life, and this unbelievable promise of a life, a world that is defined by joy and peace? How does one stay on the path between those two trees when so many things seem to be falling apart? Well, as usual, as usual, Jesus gives us a clue. He gives us some guidance. Today's reading from the Gospel of Matthew. You've heard it before. It's a call of the disciples, the first disciples in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is walking along the water. He sees these guys fishing. He walks to the edge of water, shouts out to them, Hey, follow me. I'll make you fish for people. And we're told this happens twice, and twice we're told these guys drop what they're doing, leave their family, leave their work, leave their home, and follow him. And there's so many questions, right, in your mind right now. Why on earth would these guys do this? What were they thinking? They must have been desperate. What were they running from? What were they running to? What about their jobs? Were their marriages that bad? Were their kids that annoying? <laughs> Why would they leave everything to follow this guy they did not even know? These are all great questions, and they lead to great conversation and fun speculation. But today, I want us to avoid those what-ifs. And focus on what we know. And what we know today is what Jesus said to those guys that compelled them to drop everything and follow. We know what he said. And all he said was, follow me and I will make you fish for people. He does not offer them heaven or a place beside him in the kingdom. He does not call them to an experience of their own personal salvation or promise to save them from all their troubles. He does not say, follow me and I will save your souls. There is no mention of heaven or hell, no mention of eternal salvation, no mention of sin or even forgiveness. He just offers them a community of people and a purpose. Follow me and you will be effective with people. Follow me and you will connect with others. And it appears this call to a community of faith and to a life of purpose, it's enough. Because they follow Jesus. And they don't follow him off into the fields of gold. They follow him into the streets, into the chaos, into cities where people are hurting and hungry and alone. In the 1980s, Laura Schroff was a very successful advertising executive and a hardened New Yorker. She had lived in New York City for many years and was quite comfortable, as most New Yorkers get, you have to, for self-preservation. She was quite comfortable passing by all manner of panhandlers. This is how she describes her situation. In New York in the 1980s, she writes, vagrants and panhandlers were a common sight in the city. 
They were as common as, at, common as kids on bikes or moms with strollers. The nation at that time was enjoying an economic boom, and on Wall Street, new millionaires were being minted every day. But the flip side of this, of this was a widening gap between the rich and the poor, and nowhere was this more evident than on the streets of New York City. After a while, she goes on, you got used to the sight of them. Hard, gaunt men and sad, haunted women, wearing rags, camped on corners, sleeping on grates, asking for change. It's tough to imagine anyone could see them and not feel deeply moved by their plight, and yet they were just so prevalent, she writes, that most people made an almost subconscious choice to simply look the other way, to not see them. The problem seemed so vast, so endemic, that stopping to help a single panhandler felt all but pointless. And so we swept by them every day, great waves of us going on with our lives and accepting there was nothing we could do to really help. Well, one day, Laura passed by someone on a corner. She walked past every day. She walked past a young boy asking for change. And a few steps later, something, she can't say exactly what, but something made her stop and go back and talk to that boy. The boy told her he needed money because he was hungry. She offered to take him to McDonald's, and she did, and he went. She took Maurice, that was the boy's name, to lunch. She took him to lunch that day, and a week later, and for more than 100 weeks after that. Now, what Laura didn't realize for a really long time after that first day was part of what drove her to help Maurice, part of what caused her to stop and turn around and engage him, was that she needed help too. Despite all her worldly success, she too was desperate, desperate for companionship, desperate for meaning, desperate for a way to make sense of life. All things that her relationship with Maurice provided her each and every day. She was on a journey between those two trees, and she was tired of journeying alone. Here's what I would say about God to a room full of people who have lost nearly everything to a natural or a human-made disaster. Life is a journey from blessing to promise. And along that journey, along that way, trouble will come to us all. But no matter what happens on the way, there is always one constant. The people God puts on our path. The people we encounter along the way. The rain may fall, the skies may darken, the ground may shake, the winds may blow, the fires may burn. But there will always be people like yourself who are desperate for companionship, for meaning, and for a way to make sense of their life. In a world of striving and competing and dominating and accomplishing and controlling, this call to connect with other people is a purpose I believe every one of us here is equipped to fulfill, no matter how old we are, how successful we are, how much resources we have, or how great we think we are or are not. Anybody, anybody can love anybody else. Anybody can love anybody else. 
All of us can fulfill God's purpose and find our own by simply engaging in relationships with those we encounter on the way. As people from many nations this week fled the wrath of Hurricane Irma and now Harvey, and is Jose next? As people fled wildfires out west and the anguish of drought in Africa and the crumbling walls of homes in Mexico, as people crammed into cars and caravans and buses, I'm guessing very few people struggled to make room in those tight spaces, in those cars and caravans and buses, few people struggle to make room for their diplomas or even their fine china or their playstations or their cherished devices or their beloved furniture. What they made sure they had room for in the car or the caravan or the bus or the boat, what they saw as essential in that moment when the skies were falling were all the people in their lives. The people were the one thing they could not, could not leave behind. And as they made their way down packed highways, through crowded airports, and into bustling hotel lobbies, with millions of other people in the same plight as them, on the same journey as them, I wonder, I wonder if for a moment they saw fully the promise of God. Hope, in my opinion, hope that at least is grounded in reality, is sustained by relationships. Nothing else. No word, no thing, no job, no task will sustain us in a storm. We find our purpose and we find our place in communion, in relationship with other people. Hope, at least hope grounded in reality, is found in the journey between the tree of God's blessing and God's promise with Jesus, but also perhaps more importantly, because we can see them with other people. Other people along the way who are the very things, the very ones who provide us that purpose and that place we are all looking for. Colleague and friend of mine, the Reverend Pam Drizel of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, preached a really compelling sermon the week after Charlottesville. In the sermon, she reflected on an image that she saw that she could not get out of her head. It was the image in a paper of young men who were her son's age in their early 20s, holding torches with angry, contorted faces, the veins of their necks sticking out as they yelled hateful words to people they didn't even know. As she turned that image over and over again in her mind like a drying cycle that won't stop, she wondered what caused these guys to hate somebody else so much. Was it their parents? Did someone teach them this? Or were their parents lying awake at night wondering why they didn't see the signs that their sons were being recruited by hate groups? As she reflected on how the church was called to respond to such a despicable display of hatred. She realized that what these guys were looking for, what these young men her son's age were looking for, was a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. Which got her wondering, 
how different our nation would be, how different the lives of those young men would be if the American church had been less focused over the last 50 years on institutional survival and more focused on awakening a sense of purpose in a new generation of people. Our purpose is found in our identity, and we are the body of Christ, an ever-expanding family of faith, a community that's on a journey between the trees of God's blessing and God's promise. And as we journey into the future, aware of all the challenges that face us, by God's grace, we find in the very people we encounter along the way, our purpose and our place. And as we begin to relate to those people, engage those people, and know those people, before you know it, you find yourself sitting by a river, under a tree, in peace. I'm going to close this sermon with the words of the reformer Martin Luther, who in a time marked by confusion and chaos put in the words much better than I ever could, the path, the way, the road we find ourselves on. He writes, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We, he writes, are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Alleluia and amen.